wonderful, amazing hymns of the faith. Those Christmas hymns sometimes, uh, I think Jonathan should be recorded so I can listen to him on my iTunes. He's so good. So good, brother. Thank you. Well, if you want to take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Isaiah, we are in Isaiah chapter 8. Today we will be looking at verses 16 to 22. Amy said, if you hurry, you can get to the Christmas passage for your Christmas message. And I thought, well, that would mean sacrificing on the altar, verses 16 to 22, which I cannot. Uh, But this entire section, all the way back, really to chapter 7, all the way to chapter 9, is all about Christmas, if you would, and the prophesying of the coming of the Savior. That's what it's all about. This text is no different, and so let's read it. Beginning in verse 16, this is what the Word of God says. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed, famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Let's pray one more time together. Father, we set before you this monumental passage of Scripture and ask that you, by your Spirit, would be pleased to drive it home to our hearts, to open up the understanding of your people. We humbly bow before you now and ask with great anticipation, Lord, that you would feed our souls, that you would build us up in the most holy faith so that we might be able to rightly and faithfully admonish one another according to your word. And Lord, so that we might be encouraged today in the light of so much gloom, in the light of so much distress, All we need to do is take a look around our world. If we have eyes to see, we're living in a present evil age. We need your encouragement, O God. We need your hope. We need the light of the gospel to shine in the darkness. And so, Lord, we pray, help us to see in this text great and marvelous things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, today I want to talk about a passage that really has to do with the light of the world. Because you see, unless we see the backdrop of the darkness of this text, 
Chapter 9 doesn't make a whole lot of sense because if you look with me to chapter 9, it says there will be no more gloom. And so we have to really understand the gloom before we understand the light that is to shine in the world. And that begins by another oracle of prophecy, another prophetic word that Isaiah renders here regarding his people, regarding the nation, regarding the remnant. And the very first thing to see is the gathering, what we could call the gathering of the remnant. Verse verse 11 actually introduces a theme that will become very important in the book of Isaiah, and that theme is going to be the division between the remnant and the wicked nation, the, the, the righteous and the wicked, the faithful and those who do not trust in the word of the Lord. And I, I'm, I'm grateful that it reduces to that. Because you see that where the division comes, where the dividing line comes, is what people do with the revelation of God. Not so much some internal thing, some subjective thing, some opinion that people have. It's very objective. The dividing line is over whether you side with the law and the testimony or whether you side with other sources for knowledge, for truth, for wisdom, and for your spirituality. And therefore, Isaiah means to draw this dividing line between the faithful and those who flee to divination. Kind of remarkable to think about, this passage actually takes us into the phenomenon of the occult. The occult. This is in the covenant community, which is remarkable. But Isaiah here calls us to guard the testimony, to guard the law. Really, uh, the words that he chose to use here are interesting because he says, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And what he's saying there is in terms of the testimony having to do with the things that God himself has testified regarding the people, regarding the nation, regarding their future. And then the law, the law, remember, is what governs the nation. The law is what binds the nation to the covenant. And so Isaiah is saying here, protect it at all cost. Set it aside. Preserve it among the people. For the disciples, the testimony of the law is central to their lives. The evidence of this is embodied by the prophet who says, We will wait for the Lord. Those who love His law wait on the Lord who is presently hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And Isaiah says, we wait eagerly for him. So that, that, that language there of waiting for the Lord, waiting eagerly for the Lord, very important. Because for us, it builds the bridge of a faith, of an expectancy, of an eschatological longing. I'm going to give you a couple verses here. Romans chapter 8, Philippians chapter 3, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. All of these bind us together, if you would, if I could use the language of Peter, with a faith like theirs, with a common faith, that what they were looking for as a future reality is no different, brothers and sisters, than what we are looking for in our future reality, our future hope, which is God's deliverance, God's salvation. Romans chapter 8, verse 23, it says, 
Not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, here we go, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The beautiful thing about the New Testament is it situates this entire expectation, this longing, this looking forward to God's deliverance around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. Are we heavenly oriented like that? That's a real question we need to have because one of the detriments of the nation of Israel is that they stopped looking upward. I mean, wouldn't you agree with me that this world has a way of keeping you from looking upward? It seems as if it's so impractical, right? It seems as if, how is that tangible right here, right now in my situation? How does this help me today with my problems, with my bills, with my stress, with my anxiety? I don't know what happened to this world, but all of a sudden, you know, I, I, I learned about this term called panic attack. You ever heard of that? <laughs> You're like, yeah, I deal with them all the time. <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was something about the 80s. Nobody seemed to be having panic attacks back then. Uh, I'm not that old, but what I'm saying is <laughs> it just seems as a phenomenon of our modern world. People are stressed out, right? You guys know that I train dogs and I help people with their dogs, right? Um, people watching the sermon are going to be like, what? <laughs> he does? <laughs> I was telling this lady the other day, you need to calm down. You know, you're too stressed. She laughed in my face as if to say, <laughs> I can't calm down. <laughs> and that's the attitude of so many people today. They can't calm down. They can't let go of their stress. What helps us with that, brothers and sisters, is not therapy. It's looking up. It's, look, it's longing for a heavenly reality that will come, a deliverance, a hope. If you don't have hope, what do you have? I think the worst part of hell is not the burning. The worst part of hell is that you have no hope. You can endure pain. You can endure suffering. You can endure anguish for a time if you know it will end. You can hold on for that. But to have no hope, that's a misery beyond imagination. 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul commended this idea of waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord Jesus, this eschatological hope. In verse 9, he says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, they report to us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. It will become apparent in this passage of Scripture that what God expects of His people is as the fire of tribulation is turned up where the focus of the people of God should go is to wait, to long, to look up, to look forward.
Oh, brothers and sisters, our trials and our tribulations, be careful because they're deceptive. No wonder Paul has to address our trials over and over and over and over again because if we don't know how to manage and how to handle our trials, how to approach our trials spiritually, our trials will deceive us. They will deceive us and do the opposite of what they are to produce in our lives through the eye of faith, i.e., character. And if we don't approach it with the eye of faith, well, we'll see what happens to Israel. And this is why Isaiah and his disciples, whether or not they are his literal children, because what does the passage say? Bind up the testimony, seal up the law among my disciples. And then in verse 18, he says, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. Well, Maybe these are two separate people. The disciples are those of the faithful remnant, and the children are those children that were, uh, that were mentioned earlier in the chapter. Chapter 7, verse 3 is Isaiah's first child, Shear, Shabu, uh, Yeshub. And then uh, chapter 8, verse 3 is Isaiah's second son, uh, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. But both of them function in Scripture typologically. They are a true reflection of the gospel because they reflect the solidarity of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and his disciples. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews and look with me at chapter 2 again. We saw this briefly before, but I want to illustrate this again. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 13, the entire book of Hebrews is about what? The supremacy of the new covenant. That's what it's all about. And the supremacy of the new covenant is such because here we find a mediator who is better than Moses and who stands in absolute solidarity with his people as their covenant head, as their public person, their representative. And here in Hebrews, beginning in verse 9, we have an allusion back to what Isaiah is talking about. Remarkably, remarkably. Uh, begin in verse 9 for context. You see him who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, lower than the angels because they are in a higher realm when he came down here. Because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And I would argue that everyone is going to be defined by those with whom he stands in solidarity or even more uh, accurately, everyone whom the Father gave him. Uh, anyway, let's go on. Verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, for whom are all things means what? Going back to chapter 1, verse 4, meaning that he will inherit all things. Okay? The one to inherit all things. And through whom are all things. Going back to chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, again, he created all things. In bringing many sons to glory. That's beautiful. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies Christ and those who are sanctified, believers, disciples, sons, to, sons of glory, are all from one Father. The Greek text actually just says one. Father is a translation, or actually an interpretation. It could be one source, uh, one purpose, 
One God. Okay, one Father. Okay, NASB's on to something. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. They are bound together by the Father's love, the Father's plan, the Father's glory. Saying, and then he quotes Psalm 22, verse 22. Saying, the most appropriate passage in the Old Testament that he could have quoted. You know why? Because he says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And the reason why this is the most appropriate text in all of Scripture that he could have quoted right here at this moment is because it is the Scripture of the cross. It is the very text that Jesus, from the cross, sung on the cross, as it were, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken It is the text of the cross. And that's why the author of Hebrews is singing it because there Hebrews and Isaiah speak with one voice about the covenant solidarity of the people of God to their mediator. He says, again, look at verse uh, 13. This is quoting Isaiah 8, 17. I will put my trust in him. That's the waiting that Isaiah is talking about. Again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. So what light does that shed on our text in Isaiah? That what Isaiah is talking about is prophetic of a future time. And therefore, it has everything to do with what Jesus did for us on the cross and his union with his People. It's almost like this. It's almost like in Isaiah, history is moving forward. The people are going from exile, and soon they will be gathered back into Canaan, into the land, so that they're moving from one stage of redemption to the next stage. Anytime you enter Canaan, it is an image, it is a type, it is, a, it is indicating that you are entering into heaven. And so just as Israel with their messianic hope went from exile back into the promised land, so to now believers in their hope with their Messiah, with their mediator, go from one stage of redemption to the next, from one age to the next as they move from exile into Canaan, the heavenly country that Hebrews talks about. Just remarkable. Wish we could stay there all day. But Isaiah's children are prophetic of all of this. They speak of this future covenant reality, this future remnant reality of God giving unto the Son a people for His own glory. Matter of fact, look at the text. Verse 18, the children, back in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter, where are we? 8, 18, there we go. Eight, eight, that's, that was a real brain freeze, by the way. <laughs> happens up here. Scary. You know, you think brain freezes are funny. Wait, wait, wait till that happens while you're preaching. You know? Just a little bit on the line there. <laughs> the children whom the Lord has given. Oh, yes, given me. The Hebrew verb there, to give, natan, is in the katal form, which means it's a perfect verb, not really appropriate to speak of 
tense in the Hebrew, but what they would say is that what this implies in the Hebrew text is that this is a, a matter of settled action on the part of God wherewith he has settled, he has resolved, he has chosen to give to the Son these children. And so what is this telling us, brothers? Put on your systematic theology hats for a little bit and covenant theology hat as brother was teaching us already. But what, what is going on here, of course, is that the gathering of these people is indicative of the gathering of the elect to the Son by the Father as the faithful remnant who will keep His word to be delivered by Him. And behind this Ecclesiastical phenomenon is the Trinitarian economy of the covenant of redemption. This is where John gets his language. John chapter 6, verse 37 through verse 40, 39. All that the Father gives me. Right? I lose none of them, but I raise them up on the last. Those kinds of things. John chapter 17, verse 6. Those that the Father gave to the Son have kept His name. That's exactly what Isaiah is talking about here. Here's the contrast. There are those who are identifying with Isaiah, identifying with the law, identifying with salvation, identifying with this marvelous covenantal redemption that originates from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. So we reach the pinnacle of this oracle only then to be brought into a sharp contrast in verse 19 when it says, when they say to you, that's the people. Remember, go back to verse 11 for one second. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. And then those people are saying about the current events in Judah, conspiracy, conspiracy. We don't know what's happening. Who knows what's going on in the higher echelon of government? It's up to everybody to try to figure it out. Don't listen to Isaiah. He's giving us cryptic language and symbolic language about, you know, Maher, Shalal, Hashbaz, and all this stuff. Who cares about that? Let's look to Ahaz. Let's look to the priests. Let's look to uh, Zechariah. Let's look to the priest, the son of Jeberechiah. Maybe they will inform us. That's kind of what's going on here. And then when we get to verse 19, it shows us the downward slope of the people who have rejected the law and the testimony, and then the only thing that they have left is to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter. The language of whispering and mutter means that these mediums, these witches, would go into themselves, and everything would be about their own personal imagination. The word whisper is where we get the word meditation. It says here that they, were, they are going to consult mediums and spiritists. Very, very amazing language here, which brings us to the whole notion of the occult. Let me just say, the opposite of the hope of the people of God is that these people have no dawn verse 20. In fact, the future for the majority of Jerusalem at this time uh, is precluded by their rebellion, their unbelief, their desire to find what only God can give them somewhere else, ultimately in the powers of darkness. What a reminder for us today, brothers and sisters, of what can happen once the revelation of God is rejected. Listen, 
There is no end to where people can go. Remember Noah? The imagination of the hearts are only evil continually. In other words, depravity reached to such an intolerable boiling point that God had to literally drown it out from the earth. And it hasn't changed, right? We're told in 2 Peter chapter 3, none of that's changed. The only thing that's changed is the mode of judgment. The heart of man has not changed. The mode of judgment has changed because we're no longer looking for a deluge. We're no longer looking for flood and water. But as Peter tells us, now the earth has been reserved for fire. Wow. Ominous, ominous, ominous. But it's a reminder to us. And note, although the people rejected God's light, they did not reject spirituality. Notice that? It's because like it or not, brothers and sisters, man is spiritual. We are spiritually wired. We're spiritual creatures. We're created for worship. Romans chapter 1. In the pursuit of the occult, here is evidence that man craves something beyond himself, something beyond the physical, even if they don't know what it is. Just look at Acts chapter 17 there with a reference to the idol of the unknown God. Even if you don't know what it is, you want to worship something other than yourself. But you want to worship something. People know they need something that they, they need something that they cannot give to themselves. They need something transcendent, otherworldly, spiritual, and divine. They want to give themselves meaning, purpose, and a standard that they can appeal to. Something that will give them aid, help. All the while, the madness of it is that the law and the testimony is staring them dead in the face. Isn't that our situation today? When we're trying to pry false teaching from people? <laughs> we're trying to lead people out of the signs and wonders movement and say, look, the law, the law, just go to the testimony. No, they're waiting for their next experience, of course. Sadly, like Jerusalem at this time, man's susceptibility to such evil is always rooted in man's rejection and rebellion against God and his revelation. This is going to draw up this distinction between truth and error, the occult true spirituality, which introduces a divide between false prophets, true prophets, true and false teaching, true and false signs and wonders. While Isaiah and his children are given as an indication of true revelation, the people will not, will go, will not trust in the signs of Emmanuel, the signs of salvation, but in other signs, perhaps some spiritists, some soothsayers can tell us of the events to come. You know, what's interesting about this is the word there, mediums, as it consult, the mediums. The Hebrew word there, ov, is translated by the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, which most of the New Testament people would have had in their possession at this time, is uh, agastrimuthos. Agastrimuthos, just an ugly Greek word. But anyway, it means... It's rendered in English by the lexicons as ventriloquist. So that we could say the medium is nothing but a puppet. So that a familiar spirit stands behind the puppet, pulling the strings, as it were. 
because they are acting according to the activity of Satan. They have chosen to align themselves not with the light of God, but with the darkness of the devil. Uh, Why do they do this? Well, because. Turn with me to chapter 14, see if I can explain this. Chapter 14 of Isaiah. These mediums, these spiritists are offering something. Necromancy presents the illusion that by talking to the dead, you might gain insight or you might gain some secret cryptic knowledge of the future, possibly. I thought, how's this relevant today? I'm talking to the church about this necromancy and occultism. Well, occultism is everywhere. I mean, I'm preaching at UNT. You know, I've done this before. I'll be preaching, open-air preaching. I've had Satanists come and do their rituals on on the ground in front of me and you know, I'm just like, really? What are you going to do now? You know, burn candles and tear Bibles? I mean, give me a break. You know, it's like Dungeons and Dragons. Really? I mean, come on, kids. You're not in kindergarten anymore. But anyway, I treat them nicer than that. You know what I mean? It's just so foolish to me. But, but it's because they're deceived by what the occult offers. They think that the dead are in the position of power. They have, a, they have an advantage. That's not what the Bible says. Look at, uh, look at uh, chapter 14, verse 9. When he describes the fall and he taunts the king of Babylon, he, that, he, that the king of Babylon will join with the dead, they are in a place of shame. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. That used to be my evangelism text. I used to tell people, you don't want to believe in the gospel? Oh, you want to go have fun in hell? Oh, really? Well, listen to this. I sit there and read this verse to them. Sheol, the the grave beneath you is excited about you. We do like a whole evangelism program on that. Anyway, to meet you at your coming. I mean, think about that. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead. All the leaders of the earth sounds pretty powerful so far. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. See that? You have become like us. No, to, to be dead is to be weak, to be in Sheol, If you are not saved, is to be in a place of torment, to be in a place of shame and darkness. You have no knowledge of anything. And yet people are persuaded by these spiritists, these mediums. I thought, how relevant is this? Very relevant. You know, some years ago I was in Seattle. You ever been to Seattle? Downtown, you know, where Starbucks started and all that. Um, I was doing... Church had me out to do some evangelism and apologetics training. I was astounded that in Seattle, every other billboard is a psychic or a medium or a tarot card reader or a palm reader or something. It was unbelievable. I mean, just you can't drive two minutes without on the freeway. Boom, there we go. Come, you know, signs and and all-seeing eyes and what? I mean, this whole city is given over to divinations. Disgusting. It's because of what they promise. 
is because I guess in Seattle we're staring at a whole group of people that have lost hope in the law of God. They don't believe in the light of God, so they'll seek light somewhere else. The problem is, is they're not seeking light, they're getting darkness. They're getting darkness. And today it's no different in terms of false teaching. People will opt for the wildest, stupidest, most profane and absurd spiritual leaders, false teachers, oppressive cults, abusive pastors, swindlers, hucksters, crooks. Somebody asked me once, if you had the opportunity to put Unpopular the movie on TBN, go out to millions of people, would you do it? I said, no. You know how many friends I have in the, in, in, in the uh, evangelical church that I disagree with? It's not a popular position that I hold, but you know why I won't do it? Because the Bible says this, have nothing to do with a so-called brother who is a swindler. So I turn to these people, well, you believe that? These people at TBN, these faith healers, they're swindlers. They're flying around in multi-million dollar jets using $250,000 toilets, driving, you know, Rolls Royces and wearing Rolex watches. I got a fossil watch, 60 bucks. It's a nice watch, don't I mean, Don't. And it seems as if the words of Jeremiah come thundering through with perfect clarity. The prophets prophesy falsely, and my people love to have it so. Now, we cannot not ever align with these kinds of things. There are consequences to the occult. There are consequences to the occult. And I thought, you know, when we look at the example of Israel here, I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is a warning to all of us, brothers and sisters, how we bridge the gap. Now, watch this hermeneutics, okay? Now, watch this. It's very important, guys, how we do this. You go from old. You go from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. You go from ancient times to you who are sitting in the pew right now. And how do we bridge that gap? Paul bridges it for us. Ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 speaking about the times of Isaiah, because it's Old Testament times, Old Covenant times. Now these things happened as examples for us. And here's the, opti- here's, the, here's the critical phrase. So that we, notice the personal, the, second per- the first person plural pronoun. Us, we. What I'm saying is that Paul lumps himself into the group. He's not saying just you and them. He is putting himself, he's under the warning here that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. See, because it's a heart issue. The heart never changes. You can span the testaments. You can cross the covenants. You can go from Abraham to John in Revelation. The heart of man down to our own day has not changed, desperately wicked, an idol factory. Out of the heart, Jesus says, proceeds murders, lying, thefts, strifes, adulteries. It's because of the heart. And because of our hearts, we dare not become cavalier in the face of evil, but understand 
if you stray from the law, if you stray from the testimony, from the light of revelation, you can stray right into darkness. You're not careful. Pastors know this more than anybody. The things that we counsel, things that we hear, they're going on in the church. As one pastor said, you lift up the lid of a church, every sin of hell is in there. You don't think we are susceptible to this? We are naive to think that. But the consequences of the occult is that all of Israel's privileges were turned upside down. They were in a downward spiral of darkness. All their privileges turned into curse. All their promises turned into threats. Their hope was turned into gloom. Go back to Isaiah chapter 8. Look what happens. He says to the law, the testimony, if they don't speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through the, the, the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, you ever been hungry? I'm talking like real hungry. Uh, you get desperate, don't you? <laughs> I, I've seen Christians get angry when they get hungry. <laughs> typically when the sermon's going too long. <laughs> Hunger can drive a person mad. And when God throws you into this situation where you're hungry, I'm talking like Holocaust-level hunger. I mean, I don't know what picture you have in your mind, but being hauled off into Babylon by Babylon or Assyria was not a pretty picture. We're talking about total devastation of a nation. I don't know what picture we have in our minds, but that's the level of hunger. That's the level of desperation. And when they get to that level, what do they do? They will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. To face upward means exasperation. Oh! And instead of saying, save us, God, we repent of all of our sin, they say, oh, curse you, God. And Isaiah is careful to note here that they will curse their king. And I think what's going on here is that there's a connection back to Psalm 2. The chosen nation, the nation with the king that is installed by God because of their divination, because of their rebellion against God's revelation, they become like the nations who curse God's king, who are gathered against God's anointed. A total reversal and a warning, an ominous warning for all of humanity resides here. Just a couple more things and I'll let you go. I know you're hungry, so don't start getting mad. <laughs> Turn to Revelation chapter 16. Because I think this is paradigmatic. In other words, it's prophetic of a future time. What judgment is to be found here in these centuries in Jerusalem at this time in the 7th and 6th century for the people, 8th, 7th, and 6th century, um, is ultimately prophetic. It is prophetic of the final moment. 
It is prophetic of the final eschaton. It is prophetic of the, of the latter days, the end of days, the last days, the great tribulation. It is prophetic of the impending coming of Jesus Christ and the tumultuous times that will precede it. I think, if my eschatology is correct, I think it's correct. And the reason I say that is because if you just book, read the book of Revelation, always, right before the king comes in glory, the earth is in utter chaos. Utter chaos. And so even if, you know, anyway, no more eschatology. Just the text. Revelation 16, verse 9. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power, watch this now, over these plagues. Fine balance there, isn't there, guys? You could be tempted as you read this to rationalize and sympathize with the blasphemer. They blaspheme God who allows these plagues. That's not what it said. They blaspheme God who knows that these plagues can come about. That is not what it said. He has the power of these plagues in his hand, which is another way of saying they are sent at his prerogative. John is a Calvinist who does not care to get God off the hook. And he says, And they did not repent. To give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains, their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. When reaping the whirlwind of sin, Judah will not turn in repentance to hate their sin, to confess their wrong. Instead, they turn in rebellion to hate and to curse their God. This too, brethren, is the insanity of sin. Listen carefully. Sin and the mischief of sin is such that it convinces the sinner that sin is immune to fault. It is immune to repentance and to mortification. Sin convinces us that sooner we should curse God and die than to curse our hell-deserving sin. Curse yourself, curse God, curse the world around you, but protect sin at all costs. That's the mischief. That's the deceitfulness of sin that Hebrews is talking about. You're a slave. Sin, like Satan, is mad with misery. And as we reflect on this past episode, we know that it speaks also of the future. We can't leave it there. I want you to look at your Bibles quickly with me. I want you to learn something about the the Hebrew text. Who ends the Bible by telling you we're going to talk about Hebrew now? Or who ends the sermon with talking about Hebrew? You have to, because you must understand that chapter 9, verse 1, was not written by Isaiah, meaning he didn't write chapter 9, verse 1. There is no 
chapter break in the original. And the reason that's important is because really, verses 16 all the way to chapter 9, verse 1 in the Hebrew text is actually numbered as verse 23, showing that it should go together. Why? Because in the light of all that darkness, pardon the pun, but in the face of all that darkness, then comes the light, and that light is what? Merry Christmas! People are starving, dying, and cursing God in darkness, sliding into the depths of the occult. It's almost like God is saying, you want the occult? You want to go into these shady places with these weird witches? Do all these dark seances? I'll give you darkness. I'm about to give you over to darkness. You see? And then in the light of that depravity comes in the light. And the, the in the face of that depravity. Look, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom. How glorious that is for her who was in anguish. That is Jerusalem. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt outside of Jerusalem, representative of the Gentiles. But later on, he shall make it glorious, glorious by the, by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. What's he saying here? Salvation is coming, and when salvation comes, it will be for everyone. It will no longer just be limited to the nation of Israel. It will be a, it will be a global, universal, uh, 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 it will cross continents. It will, it will go beyond the borders of the promised land to every nation, every tongue, every tribe, and everyone will see the salvation of the Lord in a manger. And that baby, oh no, don't make me point at that again. <laughs> As that baby lays there, he is the light of the world who dispels the darkness because he suffered under the darkness. He fell beneath the darkness of the judgment of God. And you remember what he said to his persecutors? Right before he goes to the cross, what Jesus said, he said, this hour and the power of this darkness is yours. In other words, enjoy it. Because it seems like the darkness is real strong right now. Seems like the darkness is getting ready to snuff out the light. You ever feel like that? I've had Christians tell me that in counseling. The darkness is so powerful. It's like sin is more powerful than God. I've had people tell me that. I said, no, no, no. No, it's just a temporary tribulation. Get ready because no more gloom is coming. The light of the world is coming. And so... In the spirit of this text, brothers and sisters, let us wait eagerly for his son from heaven. Uh, that is only something that can happen by faith. Not by getting religious, not by, not by going to a church, listening to a Bible study, but by faith, repentance and faith. That is how you can come in to know the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, help us to this Christmas season and for the new year, Help us to be reminded that Christmas is not just about the birth of a baby, but Christmas is about the potential for sinners to be 
made right with God. And that, and that that baby came in as the Savior of the world to give his life for the sin of his people, Lord. And that what we're presenting to people in Christmas is the offer of the forgiveness of sin. Help us never to lose sight of that, Lord. We thank you for sending your Son. We look at Jerusalem at this time, and we might be tempted to think, boy, those people were bad. But Lord, remind us that left to ourselves, we will crave the same evil they did. Left to ourselves, oh God, there we all go. And so Lord, we thank you today, God, that you keep us in your hand, and we beg you, we beseech you in your throne of grace. Keep us in your mercy. Keep us in your love today. And keep us in close, tight-knit fellowship with your Son, Jesus, so that we might experience all the benefits of a vital communion and fellowship with Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.